Welcome to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. In the next hour, you'll hear from some phenomenal people and healthcare leaders and learn how their challenges became opportunities. Our goal is to show you how you can positively influence your own life experience and purpose and achieve success. And now, here is your host, Danielle Delaney. Hello, and welcome to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle Delaney, and I'm also the author of the new award-winning book titled Expect Delays, How to Reclaim Your Life, Light, and Soul After Trauma. Expect Delays is now available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, iTunes, eBooks, and for more information, you can go to expectdelaysbook.com, or you can always reach me and all of my social media through my website, daniellelaneycounseling.com. Now, this is February, which is also Black History Month. I have two incredible guests today, and my first and very special guest today is Academy Award-winning actor, Emmy Award-winning actor, Mr. Lewis Gossett, Jr. Mr. Gossett has appeared in over 200 films and television programs over his six-decade career. You know him from Roots, An Officer and a Gentleman, Iron Eagle, and a body of work so impressive and incredible that I couldn't possibly list it all here. Lou, I walk by your shining star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame almost every day, and you are still constantly working and constantly filming, and I'm just so very fortunate that you could make some time for me today. It is much appreciated, and welcome. Welcome to the show, Lou. Oh, no, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be anywhere, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good start. It's been quite a, quite a, a tragic year for some people that are loved and admired so much who are gone. That's that, true. Uh, you begin to ask God, uh, well, you've kept me here. I know you've not kept me here just to stay alive and do nothing. No. There must be something I'm doing that you, you say that my work is not finished. So when he, you decide to, to call me, um, I'll be still on the work, on the job. And you are, and you are. And you always answer the call. And working in movies, I haven't worked a day in my life. Oh, it's all been a joy for you, but it's all been yeah. hard, hard work. And as I, at exactly what you just said, that we've lost so many people in this yeah. past year. As I walk down that walk of fame, because that's where I take my little exercise walk every day, I notice your star. I notice certain ones just shine out to me, and then other ones have flowers around them and candles around them. We really did lose a lot of bright lights this year. Yeah, yeah. so and we have to take their message and continue it and keep, keep the light alive. Well, in the spirit of keeping that light alive, that's one of the things I really want to hear more about is you have the Eracism Foundation to eradicate yeah. racism. And I think the timing for talking about that and what was the catalyst for creating that, I think the timing couldn't be better right now. Well, I'd love you to tell me some more about that. Ten, yeah, I've been, been at it for about 10 years. And, mm. uh, and it's beginning to, be, to, to purify the, the message. It has nothing to do with freedom for, for minorities has nothing to do with black liberation, has nothing to do with that. It's a bigger picture. Part of the lessons came from Nelson Mandela that I had 15, 20 minutes alone with. I wouldn't go to South Africa until uh, he came out of that prison. Mm. And, and everybody was frozen seeing what he would do. Was he was still angry like the, he was, the way he was when he got in there? Mm. And he was not. He came out with a smile, which is a, and, and a gratitude, which was, mm -hmm. uh, it, it blew everybody away. And as a result, he became one of the most important men in the, in the, in the world. Mm -hmm. because he came out with a philosophy, and his two best friends were his jailers. They didn't start that way, but something must have happened in that prison for him to do that. He says it's a bigger picture than even the liberation of black people in South Africa, and it really definitely is. I think we're put on this planet, all of us, mm -hmm. to tend to this planet, it to make sure that the oceans planet. are clean and clear, mm -hmm. the air is, is getting foul, and it needs to freshen up. 
we're brilliant enough to, to maintain the health of this planet, and we're not doing that. It's not number one on our agenda. And it needs to be. It needs to be. And, now, and when you, you first went to South Africa, was, or to Africa, was that the catalyst for creating the Eraser Foundation? One of the Can catalysts. You tell me a one little? of the catalysts. Uh, uh, he said it's a bigger picture, and he's talking about the preservation of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got. To, he went straight to the clerk, and they went behind closed doors, locked the door, and started to talk about hmm. apartheid and uh, how they came out from somewhere else to have control because of diamonds and gold and all the stuff that saves mm-hmm, the planet. Mm-hmm. And they want to control. It's the two mentalities were fighting. He became the first uh, president in his own country in his own land, mm-hmm. and he started. And and his moves were very eloquent, especially when he put the the the, uh, the rugby hat on and they won the World Cup. Mm. He united everything he did, united everybody in that country. He's a beautiful and person. So, so a nothing that person. had happened to me, and a lot happened to me because of racism, mm. but nothing could compare to what happened to him and his people. Nothing. So my anxiety, my anger, my resentment, and my rage disappeared. And it took all this time for me to replace it with something more uh, uplifting. So as an elder now, uh, mm. I, I uh, talk to the young people, but I talk to all people because they kind of uh, listen. But uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the biggest uh, uh, message that I've gotten from the young people is I realize that those lessons for their behavior stopped. And somewhere mm-hmm. around uh, integration time, which was good and bad, they abandoned those things that got them to survive all the way from Africa through the Middle Passage to America mm-hmm. and, and, and how they maintained the, the neighborhoods and the lessons that they gave to the kids. started from Africa, but there's certain ages... Use certain things that you were expected to do. Uh, when you were three, it's four, changed. five, right. you had to gather the eggs and everybody ate. Mm-hmm. And then when you were a little older, you had to take care of the cattle. When you were a little mm-hmm. older, you had to protect them. And then you became a warrior. And you defended uh, against all the predators. And then you got older, and you got married, you became a father. And there was a system set up mm. that made everybody survive. And if somebody was negative, like they are today, by selling drugs and shooting one another... Those lessons are not there. So you can't blame those kids for doing that because the lesson stopped. It's like a child in a high chair in the kitchen mm-hmm. with the food on the, on, the, on the high chair, and the mom is on the phone too long. The food's going to go on the floor. Mm-hmm. They can't intellectually tell you what they need, but they need those lessons again. They need the lesson. How would you go about correcting the condition now? What, what do you I've think? I've created a, a curriculum. I've created a curriculum, and potentially it might start also with the Major League Sports, but it's the same. Uh, as, as any kind of child who is not an athlete, mm-hmm. those lessons, those lessons of behavior, dress code, those lessons. Uh, uh, respect for the opposite sex. Absolutely. Uh, That's uh, a huge uh, one. Uh, respect for, for the elder, the knowledge of your culture, and others, other cultures. So there's a sensitivity when you communicate, a, a dress code, a, a spirituality, depending on how and who you believe in. Mm-hmm. It all is the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is expected of you at each age. Uh, the conflict resolution, which uh, on my board of directors is the Strauss Institute for Conflict Resolution, so that when you walk the streets and you wake up every morning, you give thanks to whoever you worship, and you mm-hmm. carry that message in all of your affairs. Mm. And, and if you carry that message in all of your affairs, racism is a, is a, is a sore in that, that process, and you, then you have to uh, heal the sore in order to completely be responsible for one another, and number one, the planet. And, and number nobody one is for paying the planet. attention. I like it's not that. even on our agenda. 
I like that, and I remember reading a quote from you about tribalism and how, how in the United States there's tribalism. Now it's sort of like everyone only cares for their own. Tell a little bit more about that, because well, the, the I have been asked specifically the, the to talk to you about that. With the, 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 the first Americans, for the Africans, the, the Incas, mm-hmm. the Mayas, the Aztecs, everyone survived because of a tribalism. And uh, when the explorer came to Africa, mm-hmm. you kind of connect dots, they saw... Uh, let's go back for a little bit further. Let's go back to to, uh, to Noah and his ark when okay. the earth started to uh, change and, and water came into the planet. Before that, there were islands. You could almost walk from Africa all the way to South America. Mm. There was a, there was a, there, so the, those islands in the Caribbean were, are just tops of mountains. So you can row mm-hmm. from one mm-hmm. place to another. So the first explorers who did that came out of Africa. Uh, Professor Leakey, L-E-C-K-E, who, uh, who discovered the... Uh, the first skull, mm-hmm. the oldest skull ever possible, was at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro. So during that earth change in Europe, all those mountains, man had to go into a cave until things settled down. In Asia, most of those countries turned into islands. And in Africa, Africa came out of the ocean higher. Mm-hmm. So this the only interrupted civilization, uninterrupted civilization, was Africa. So when man came out of the cave and he had his club and he had his horses and he started to explore and conquer and have war, it went by way of uh, uh, the Asia, of Asia, the Orient, and that was Marco Polo, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And he learned how to uh, he learned about gunpowder that they were using it for fireworks at the time. But he learned about gunpowder. He took gunpowder, got back on the horse, all of his co- cohorts, mm-hmm. and he started to conquer the planet. He came to Africa and they were studying animal husbandry, astronomy. Alchemy, medicine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the planet, the, 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 the astronomy, um, and uh, all of those things they needed to survive and had been doing it for centuries. They go to a marketplace and barter, and what their specialty was, they would exchange for somebody else's specialty. Mm. And then they'd come back home and, 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 and continue to survive. So they had, had, had a civilization already intact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, when the conqueror came with his guns and his swords and his horses, he said, if I don't do something now, I'm going to, have to be the third or the fourth civilization on this planet. Mm. And I think was the birth of racism. And do you think that's when tribalism and separation began as well? Separate the tribes, separate mm-hmm. and then put one against the other. Mm. So maybe good or bad, whatever that story is, and we have our history books about that, um, it's come full circle. Well, you've certainly read yours. You have so much information to share. I mean, just so much information to share. And I'm still fascinated by some of the things I read in the book, some of your colorful anecdotes. The book is called An Actor and a Gentleman, which I love for for my listeners to know the name of it. And some of these stories, um, life stories, anecdotes, philosophies that you've developed, uh, learning from Sidney Poitier, playing poker oh. twice a week with Sidney Poitier and Paul Newman. And oh, yeah, he's James the Paul, so I, wait, when I get there, I'm going to ask Paul Newman for my $300. <laughs> he owes you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Old yeah. Blue Eyes owes you money. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And James Dean, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, I know James, that had to be oh, heartbreaking. What a brilliant young man. Mm. So me and my, my, my understudy, his name is the late Benito Federico Carruthers. You've seen him mm. in a Dirty Does It and other things, quite an actor. Mm-hmm. And James Dean, after a session with Frank Silvera and some of the people from the actor's studio, we'd walk. We'd go to Horn and Hard Arts right there uh, where the uh, Carnegie Hall was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put the quarter in and you get your stuff out. And we'd get the, a, 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 a container of milk and jelly donuts. And we'd walk and we'd imitate 
Miles Davis. <laughs> we knew every note. Then we'd oh. tell jokes, and we'd, we'd, we'd fantasy about who we were. Now, we were. Next time when we grew up, we're going to be just like Brando and just like what, Anthony What Quinn. year was that? I'm just looking back at this and oh, thinking how fast. Oh, in the late 50s. Late 50s. Wow. And, uh, you know, when, and I was 17, never having acted or seen a play. Uh, for some magic reason, my teacher, the late Gustav Bloomberg, he mm-hmm. called himself Gus Bloom. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other story. But we, we were benefited from the intellectual cream of the crop of America, running from uh, the late Senator Estes Kefauver before McCarthy. Mm. They had to run from all of the, the jobs and the universities and stuff, and they came to Brooklyn, and I grew up with their children. So I became the first black uh, president of the junior high school, the captain of the basketball team, and went on to high school and became the president of the senior body. And at that mm. time, my, Gus, my late Gus Blow, my English teacher, he said, they're looking for a young black kid to play this leader in this Broadway show called Take a Giant Step. Take a Giant T- Step. Tell, you, tell your right. mama to take you down there. What can you lose? And that's mm-hmm. how I got into the show business. Turned out to be, it was a gift that I was born with. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, teach, they had to teach me all during the, every day for that summer how to act and how to learn the part. And uh, they said, you got, you, you got it now. So, but all you got to do is get rid of your Brooklyn Jewish accent. <laughs> said, you had a Brooklyn Jewish accent. I had a Brooklyn Jewish accent. I'm toity, toity, you know. <laughs> and you also played of... guitar and sang some, correct? So you've always yep, been a natural yeah. entertainer. Yeah, so, so it was natural. I used to entertain my mother and father and my uncles by imitating some of the people that I saw at the Apollo. Mm. Duke Ellington and Count Basie and all those particular people. And sure oh. enough, when I was backstage uh, at Ticket Giant stuff, they all wound up with the new kid on the block, bringing me sandwiches and sodas <laughs> and stuff to take care of the young new kid on the block and lead mm. on Broadway. So in my dressing room, I didn't know exactly who they were, but it was, in retrospect, it was it's Paul Robeson. It was uh, Lena Horne. Wow. Josephine Baker. Oh. Uh, Adam Clayton Powell and his wife, Hazel Scott. Walter White, whose daughter was in the play with me, who started the NAACP, mm-hmm. they took such good care of me. So I was raised by my great-grandmother, uh, me and my cousins. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she taught us a lot of lessons, that God was there before you got here. He's going to be here while you're here. He's going to be here long <laughs> after you're gone. So you may as well call him on down and let him run things. That's what <laughs> We're she not said. in charge. It's true. Yeah. So I have a photograph of me and her on a daily basis on my iPad cover. Oh. Uh, me at 17, during Take a Giant Step, and her at 115. Wow. So uh, those lessons, going back to the roots, really resonate even today. They really do. And so I after kind all of this envy trouble those and times. all these trials and tribulations, I'm mm-hmm. going back to the basics. Mm-hmm. The basics I mean, is what do you do when you're the an hardship. elder? You spread the message one more time. Spread the message. I don't envy the hardships of those times, but the people. Well, there are reasons the for those hardships, the, obviously. brilliant. There are reasons for those hardships. We have to survive them. True. And uh, so I think the transition from male to female is essential, eminent, mm-hmm. because that uh, domination and that bullying and that bossism mm-hmm. is now making a transfer to the feminine side of mankind, mm. of, of, of rebirth, nutrition, nourishment, love, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and understanding. And we cannot, as old warriors... Resist it. No, you need the balance. It's all about balance. balance. Yeah, so the balance is happening. God's in charge. That's who I think is in mm-hmm. charge. Somebody, people call him Allah. Other people call him everything else. But it's the same energy. Yeah, the higher power as you understand it, exactly. Yeah, as you Whatever understand. you want to call it. A very funny uh, quote happening in, in the meeting this morning, in the AA meeting. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, thank God I'm an, I'm an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> thank God I'm an giggle. atheist. <laughs> I like that. Now, how long have you been in recovery? So you were at an AA meeting just um, this morning? Double digits, double digits. So I'll be wow. 13. Wow. Well, you've got me beat by some, I'll tell you that. Yeah, and it's so, just... but I've been, I've been at it. If I had not uh, taken matters into my own hands, it would be 29 years. But wow. I have what I have, and it's uh, as a result of those uh, adventures. Uh, it's a very solid, on a daily basis, relationship I have with my higher power. And and thank God for that. But thank, thank God, God that. right. I kept thank you here. God I'm an atheist. <laughs> yeah, thank God you're an atheist. I like that one. And, and you know what? Like, some of the stories in your book, the story in Jamaica with the money in your sock, and oh, the things God. that happened when you, when you were high yeah. in Jamaica, I thought, this guy's been through everything. I've got to I've talk to him. I've been all through it, everywhere. You know, done, um, Jamaica with the... I just knew they were going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that they had not stolen my steering wheel. I was on the right side because we were in Jamaica. That was hilarious. You're sitting on the wrong side of the car, and you right. thought they'd stolen the steering wheel, and then you had to find a way to get out and act cool and walk around yeah. to the driver's and side, and you finally came down. when I got down to the bottom, down. the men in the hotel and everybody else on the island knew that what I had done, and they had laughed me off the place. <laughs> You have some really good stories in that book. I mean, I was just, I knew I was having you on, so I wanted to read it, but I couldn't put it down. The stories that overlap are just so interesting, and some of it's philosophical, and then yeah. some of it is just so deep and resonates today. And I the would lessons love you. continue. Now, if mm-hmm. our planet is dying, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. is, it's showing, God is showing us symbols with its, its extended rain and its erratic weather. Oh, we're and, getting and, messages, and yes. We're getting messages. We're getting messages from the, the fish that's contaminated with the mm-hmm. poisons we put in it. Mm-hmm. The rainforest is depleting. Uh, the, the, the food that we eat has got chemicals in it, including the vegetables, all those vegetarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are dying. Uh, the children are dying because of insecticides. So if we're not taking care of this planet, we all may as well be in that 747 airplane. Mm-hmm. It's at 30,000 feet, but the plane's about to crash. But people decided the plan of fighting over who's going to be in first class. Mm-hmm. It's completely the wrong the priorities. The plan is it's Wrong irrelevant. priorities. And we're spending all of our energies trying to be number one. Mm-hmm. When it takes all of us, all of us in this country, it takes all of the American citizens to, to straighten out what's happening. Another tribe has taken over. It doesn't mean anything. What good is it to have a wall when they have sophisticated ways of tunneling into America? Exactly. Maybe we should uh, change and look in the mirror and change our philosophy. Because you the borders so are sense. no longer relevant to mankind. You make so much sense, Lou. You make so much sense. The so I try to humbly uh, give that to the next uh, generation, and the cell phones go away, and they listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God's way of saying that this is what I should be doing since he has saved my life, and I didn't go away in 2016. Mm-hmm. I've got to do this on a daily basis. And as long as I do that, I can be plugged into an energy that I highly recommend everybody to do so we can come up with the same elimination of racism is a small one. We have to wipe it all away so we can work together for the salvation of mankind and the planet. Come together. I love what you said last week when I spoke to you briefly, too, about selfless service and selfless just continuing service. that, what that means to you. That's the selfless service is number one, but that's how I get plugged into that energy, mm-hmm. by taking care of others, especially if my target is young people. Now, what is the website for your, for your Eracism Foundation? I just want to give that out before we run out of any time. We have a little while, but I just want to make it's sure. Called it's called eracismfoundation.org. Okay. So the Eracism, Eracism Foundation, that's E-R-A-C-I-S-M. Yeah. Foundation. The word racism, put an E in front of it. 
Mm-hmm. Racism with an E in front of it. Very clever, by the way. Yeah, no, it's a clever thing. I saw that originally in a small organization in Louisiana. Really? About the Choctaw Indians. And I said, what a great idea. And then uh, fade out, fade in. I'm driving around SC, and I saw a young man selling the T-shirt. I bought them all. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, <laughs> Then I had to, you know, reinvent it and made it international. Well, you did a good job. You did a, b- a beautiful job of it. A ten-year foundation that's serving mankind like that and yeah. selfless service and teaching people how to come together and that we have yeah. We have not. I highly recommend any adult to, to go in the same direction because uh, nobody wins otherwise. No, it's and truly a higher. We won't have any place higher. to live. No, no, truly a higher purpose. Now, I want to ask you about a story, if you don't mind. I want to ask you about a story. I wanted to ask you about something in your book. Go ahead. Um, There was that day that you came to Beverly Hills for the first time as a big movie star, and you rented that white Thunderbird, and I'd love you to tell what happened afterwards. Your first day. Well, the people I grew up with were leaders of the the business, out of the William Morris Agency, the late Ed Mm -hmm. Bonding. And it was Lou Wasserman who created Universal. Yes. And uh, he created the first movie of the week that was ever on television. Hmm. And I participated in that. And they put me in the front, in, in, the, in the propeller airplane, in first class. Mm. And they, they sliced, that was when they sliced the meat and stuff in front of you. Mm-hmm. The best foods that I'd ever tasted in my life. Mm. And they had me in first class. When we got into LAX, a limousine came onto the tarmac and got me out of the plane first. So they must mm. have thought I was this great African diplomat. And how old were you? I was, oh, I can't remember. It's 1966, so you can okay. do some quick arithmetic. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they took me to the Beverly Hills Hotel and put me in a presidential suite. Mm-hmm. The president's had been in that suite. Beautiful. So I've come from Brooklyn, out of Broadway, to, to come to Howling. I said, wow, what a beautiful life this is. Mm-hmm. And then finally there was a note from uh, Lou Wasserman that you have a, a, a car, budget rent a car on, on uh, Sunset Boulevard. And mm-hmm. it takes maybe approximately 20 minutes to go from one place to another. Mm-hmm. So I got in the car. It was a Ford Fairlane Galaxy 500. It's a hard top convertible. Mm, beautiful. Eggshell white with red interior. And I turned on the radio, and it was it was Sam Cooke playing. Mm. It was about 95 degrees, and it was hot. I put the top down. I started going back. It took me four and a half hours to get and from 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 uh, Crescent Heights and Sunset to the Beverly Hills Hotel. Beverly Hotel. Hotel. And that's not far at all, there. and I'd like you to tell everyone why. That really, that really just floored me to read that story. Every 15 minutes, another cop would stop me, get me out, and put me under the car, put my hands on the car, sit down on the curb to find out who the hell do, they, do I think I am. Mm-hmm. I met them all. They were all reminded me of Rod Steiger in Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. They were more flabbergasted than upset. Mm. And so when I got back to the hotel, I was not in very good shape, and the hotel manager said, what happened to you? And he called me Mr. Gossett. Mm-hmm. I told him, and he said, oh, those blue-collar workers. You know, they come from, you know, Mississippi and Alabama. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're, they're descendants of the people who used to work in the factories for the war. Mm-hmm. And they don't know better. Calm down. So I calmed down. He gave me a great deal, a great meal, just like the one that I got on the airplane. Mm-hmm. And he said, by the way, some of the most famous actors living around here. And here's the, here's the brochure. Why don't you go see those motion picture the people's homes, Greer Garson and Clark Gable. And they all lived there. So I went to see the houses, mm-hmm. and the Beverly Hills police stopped me. Again. And uh, they handcuffed me to a tree, a mm. pine tree, a young pine tree for three hours. Now I had had it. So I called my mother and father. My father says, I'll be right there. Now he's in Coney Island. I'm in Beverly Hills. How's he going to be right there? <laughs> mm-hmm. And mom said, come home. 
And I called my best friend, Ed Bondi, my agent, and he said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to get in the car and go to work tomorrow morning. He said, that's what I expected you to do. Mm. And uh, that's how it started. And, I can't uh, even imagine there was a lot of, uh, and that became sensitive to the inequity with mm-hmm. treatment. Why did I, I didn't do anything. I, why, why did I get this treatment? Because I'd never experienced abject racism until then because of the society I grew up in in Brooklyn. And uh, I, I kept on going to sets and I um, kept getting clothes with flea-bitten clothes and wild horses and westerns. And mm. Thank God I survived it all. But I thank wanted God you to did. know what this is, what is, what is wrong. That's not the way I was raised, and finally no. it came to this uh, Eracism Foundation. It's a, it's, a, it's a disease. It is. That's going to kill us all. I like the phrase that it is a disease. It. There's those, uh, well, those 30 richest families who want things to stay the same. Mm-hmm. They, too, will die if this planet goes. Mm-hmm. We've come to the end of that era. We, d- we can't live like we have another planet. This is it. This is now, it. They're looking at other planets, but they'll do the same thing there. But we don't have another planet to live on right now, and we have no, to take care of the Earth now. So we have to take care of ourselves and one another, number one, to make sure that the bottom line, especially here in America, is for every child, free shelter, free food, free education, free medicine, and free uh, love. So they can start from scratch with, with an open mind on getting better. That's the last thing on the agenda today. And that's what it needs to be. That's exactly what it needs to be. So, so and, and that growth, erase, racism, can't exist. It can't live. No. There's no oxygen for it to live. No. So my service as an elder is to shred the message in a, in a center that I call the Shamba Center, S-H-A-M-B-A, and that's a Swahili word meaning farm, to plant the seeds once again, to go back to that tribal thing of what's expected of you at each age. mm and if uh, and those, especially those angry kids, those angry black kids who are fighting for rights, if they win those rights, it's less than they deserve. Right. But if they know about their roots, then the best and the most pleasant place in every city in America would be the black neighborhood or the barrio. Because then they become ambassadors of peace, and when you come there, it's safe. You can come and eat the, the wonderful foods and listen mm-hmm. to the culture and go back and spread the word. And you yeah. spread the word that it's safe now to go there. In those less than a couple of months, the racism is gone. You look up one day, and the cop that was used to bother you is now your next-door neighbor. I look forward to that day. I look forward to that but day. But it's not going to be perfect, but we just have to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no perfection. Just go in that direction on a daily basis. Well, progress, not happens. perfection. Isn't that what we learn in, in AA? Yeah. Progress, not perfection, but we're getting yes, there ma'am. slowly. Yes, slowly progress, not perfection. And it's got to be number one on our agenda. Before breakfast. Before, before breakfast. Now, before the day breakfast. after you won the Oscar, you told me a beautiful story, and let's close with that. The story of the homeless man that you encountered right after you'd won, what did he say to you? Tell his me a little nickname, bit. His nickname was Paul Newman because he had those beautiful blue eyes. He had the blue eyes just like yeah, Paul? head full of hair and beard. Mm. And then he wrapped in clothes, and he had a shopping cart with all of his belongings, and he had no nothing for feet, so he had to wrap them in burlap from from mm. those fruit sacks. And I walked in the next morning to get my stuff, my, my eggs and stuff, and the whole shopping center, the old place, they they applauded me. They all stopped. They gave me applause. And I, and I came out, and he was standing there. He says, hey, Louie, what's all that noise in there? I said, well, they were <laughs> applauding. He says, who are they applauding? I said, they're applauding me. He said, what? They're applauding you? What? What did you do? I said, I won the Academy Award last night. He said, what? You won the Academy Award? 
I said, yes. He said, well, that's supposed to be impossible, but you got it. Congratulations. I said, thank you. They put his finger in my face. He said, you still got to behave yourself. <laughs> and you took it to heart. I took it to heart to behave myself. I said, he's homeless, didn't get any food for four shoes, but he had that automatic assumption that he was better than me. Mm. There's no such thing as anybody being better than anyone else. No. So my title here people. in America is not African-American anymore. It's American-African. Yes, that's what you prefer, and I like that. Tell me why. Why? Because why do the you word American is what is our citizenship. There's a responsibility mm. when you call yourself an American. Mm-hmm. And if people come to this country, they have to have that responsibility. How do we got started? What the Pledge of Allegiance is? What the Declaration of Independence is? What the Star Spangled Banner really means? And what's mm-hmm. in it for us to survive, to serve, mm-hmm. rather than to receive? Mm. That binds us together by taking care of this number one country in the world. I can't say number one, but it takes better care of this place where everybody came from some, some atrocity to have a free life. But the, the, the funny thing is that once mm. you've been persecuted and you get freedom, you take on the personality of the persecutor. True. It's like a Stockholm Syndrome sort of a factor. Yes, and yes, ma'am. So we mm-hmm. need to uh, rethink one another mm-hmm. and together put this country as a great country, as, as a haven for people who have been persecuted. I believe we, so. We need to start with the children. And then we need to everything start with gets them better. always. We have to really enjoy what that American Indian culture is and really know about it and really know about the African and the Irish and the Jew. And the, we're supposed to have this country that promised us to be one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And we're mm. not doing that. No. So I have to do a gentle suggestion. The kids are all ears. I'll continue. And I'm glad that you do because they're little sponges and we need to just be the oh, human they're all ears. They, they want to know what happened to the lessons. They mm-hmm. can't tell you that, but that's what it is. What mm-hmm. happened to the lessons? What are you going to stop me? Mm-hmm. And, you left into, and you left those decisions into the hands of immature minds. You get immature decisions. Exactly. And Without that those lessons. That and that's what we have change. to pass on to the next generation. They're, they're going in that direction anyway. But it's got to be a higher order than what they're doing. Much higher, much higher. Well, Lou, it's been a pleasure having you. I hope you'll let, allow me to have you on again. I could talk to you all day long and listen well, to we, you all we, day long. Right. That's a mutual promise. Oh, thank you. I would love it. And okay. for everyone listening, go to eracismfoundation.org. Learn what you can do. Learn more about what Lou is doing. And Lou Gossett, it has been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you being here. I'm so very soon. humbled by your request. Thank you. Oh, oh, thank you. That means the world to me. Take right. care. We'll speak soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Now, my next guest coming on today is a friend of Lou Gossett's. His name is Keith A. Summers. And we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back and talk about their friendship and the Keith A. Summers Foundation, which is an international, Keith A. Summers International Foundation, I should say, and how he prepares young adults for positive futures as well to avoid the risks and the consequences that come from those risks. So we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You 
You are tuned in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. If you'd like to connect with Danielle, feel free to send an email to therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. That's therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we are back, and you are back, listening to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. I'm your host, Danielle Delaney, and I'd love to introduce you now to my second guest, and his name is Keith A. Summers. Keith is quite a force for good. He's a powerful presence, a powerful speaker, an actor, and a motivator. So tell us a little bit more about you, Keith, and about your Keith A. Summers International Foundation that prepares these young adults in our world for positive futures and, and how you came to doing this work. Well, let's see. My journey started in southeastern Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. It began in 1964, and I was... Uh, product, one of two, to a union of a six-foot-seven African-American man mm-hmm. who grew up playing hoops with Mr. Wilt Chamberlain in West Philadelphia, and a five-foot-three Italian woman who was raised in New York City by her single mother, for her dad died when she was six. Mm-hmm. And so my mom had basically a substitute guardianship, if you will, of her other two sibling sisters. They met on a blind date, my mother and father. They fell in love, and my mom had a pretty profound decision to make. She either was going to enter the convent, for which her mother, my grandmother, Tiny, groomed her for Mm -hmm. from the time she was born as the first child, or instead of going to the convent, she was going to marry my father and be wife and matriarch and mother. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm here, so it kind of tells you what <laughs> we know. What she chose, didn't don't we? <laughs> <laughs> what happened back then in the '60s mm-hmm. was a, a pretty much akin to the Hatfield and McCoy rivalry between my mother's side of the family and my father's, because my father was devout Lutheran. He was mm-hmm. raised very staunch Lutheran, and my mom was Catholic. There was a rivalry. Because my dad's African-American and my mother is Italian and East Indian, mm-hmm. the racial dynamic was also at issue between the two feuding sides. And my father's side was considered affluent back in the day for his mother and father, my mom, mom and mm-hmm. pop were proud owners of a seafood restaurant called Summer Seafood in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, it was customary that when a man married a woman, the woman's family would pay for the wedding and all the processions that were required to be husband and wife. Mm -hmm. But because my mom's side of the family was so poor and destitute, my father's and his family took care of those financial obligations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my mom had my brother, who was a year and a half my senior. His name is Joel. And then I was born, and we lived in southeastern Pennsylvania. Now, everything where I'm from is black and white, and just as I just got finished telling you, so am I. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my yearbook went from Abrams and ended at Zimmerman. Wow. So, to this very day, I don't think I've encountered anybody who's attended as many bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs as I have. Maybe I have. Um, I'm from Encino and Bel Air, so you never know. <laughs> I thought I was a Heinz 57. You really, you, you've got one over on me. Oh, yeah. Um, Truly. 
And, you know, I would bring a lot of my friends home, like Seth Boitman and Stephen Wallen mm. and Catherine, you know, uh, Feinstein. And these girls would come in to my home and they'd be made to be part of the family. And mm. then when we had extended family functions, I'd bring them down to my grandmother and grandfather's. And my father, grandfather would say things like, are you ever going to be attracted to a colored woman? Mm-hmm. So I lived that way with that mm-hmm. delusion, with that warped perception of mm-hmm. self and others for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And I remember being doing in our recovery work, I remember doing my inventory and peeling back that onion, as they say. And you're speaking of recovery work in AA, just for people who don't know, the recovery work of peeling the onion and and taking inventory of who you are and what you're responsible for. Right, the uncover, discover, and discard. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I I did that research. I, I got all the way back and I said, you know, where did I lose my spiritual identity? Mm-hmm. Where did I lose that trajectory of self? Mm-hmm. And I got all the way back to second grade. However old a kid is in the second grade, I remember getting off the school bus. Mm-hmm. And I just got done playing extracurricular activities. And it was around 5.15, 5.30, the bus dropped me off. And I go, dropped me right in front of the, the, the driveway. And I go up the driveway to the front door, the big door is open, the screen is secure, and my mother is inside preparing the evening meal. Now, I look back and I look at my mom basically had two full-time jobs. She was an operating room nurse, mm-hmm. and she was also matriarch and mother of our home. Oh, yeah, that's and definitely so she was two full-time jobs. Yeah. And she was preparing the evening meal, and I said, Mom, open the door. Mom, open the door. Mom, mm-hmm. open the door. Mom, mm-hmm. open the door. When she finally unlatches it, and I come barreling inside. She's like, Keith, what's wrong with you? I'm like, Mom, just leave me alone. She's like, Keith, baby, what's wrong with you? I'm like, Mom, just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. She grabs me by both cheeks, looks, in, looks into my eyes, and Danielle, she asked me a life-defining question. Mm-hmm. Baby, tell me I'm your mama. What's wrong? Mm-hmm. And I said the following. Mom, am I white? She says, Keith, why would you ask that? I said, well, Mom, the black kids say I'm a gray boy. I'm a zebra. I'm a half-breed. I'm a mutt. I'm an Oreo. Mm-hmm. Mom, mm-hmm. my hair's not like them. My skin's not like them. I don't talk like them. I don't live where they live. Mommy, am I white? Keith, wait till your dad gets home. Well, mm-hmm. dad comes in from his aerospace job as quality control engineer and mm-hmm. takes a shower and makes himself a little beverage under the kitchen sink, and he gets the newspaper. My mom says, Arthur, we need to talk to Keith. All right, Keith, go up to the master bedroom. Well, I went up to the master bedroom, sit me down, and Dad imparts his pearls of wisdom, and so does my mom. And they each tell me how I got the certain attributes and characteristics mm-hmm. from each side of the racial spectrum mm-hmm. and why I'm the best of two worlds, you see. Exactly. But, Danielle, have you ever heard an adult speak in a Charlie Brown episode? Yes, wah, 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 wah. yes exactly. That's all I heard. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's all you heard. You didn't I take heard. it in at all at that age. But what happened to me internally because our whole perception is based on how we process reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what happened then is I had emotional detachment. I could no longer look at my mother and father and see the same people I did prior to that, emo- that moment. It I looked at my brother and felt he belonged there. I didn't. Mm. He fit in. I didn't. He had more mm. African-American characteristics. I didn't. So right. he wasn't cajoled or berated or ridiculed or scorned 
were made fun of by the African Americans, which were very a select few. We're talking one out of every two hundred kids was African American mm-hmm. in my school. It was only you know, it was very small remnant of the school population. And he didn't have the same social frustrations as I had. No, he just had a completely different life experience being who he is. Exactly. Though he came from the same mother, biological mother and father, same womb, Mm -hmm. because he took on more African-American, he was more assigned to the African-American community. He had a place to fit, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So as we grew up, how that materializes, how that social ill conceptualization of self manifests itself I developed a thing called childhood obesity. Mm. That's where I was so fat because people say, well, you know, as soon as you say obese, like you think, well, that's such a broad spectrum. How do you mean obese? Well, I was too fat to play football. Mm. Now, I and this is when you're a teenager? Scale, yeah, I was probably 9, 10, 11. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to get heavy, and then around. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, up to 17 was the obese period. And I would get on the scale, and they had a weight limit, you know, at 120, like 85 pounds, 95 pounds, 125 pounds, and I'd consistently be barred from playing football, where I had to take off my jersey, take off my shoulder pads, put the jersey back on inside out, because when I got out into the stadium field, they didn't want me to throw off the statistician up in the press box. Oh, so what I'd a sit on the sideline. breaker. That's awful. And in, in the recovery, there's a terminology called pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, mm-hmm. known by the acronym PAID. Mm-hmm. And I look up into the bleachers, and I look at my grandmother and my grandfather, my dad's parents who came to give me parity and support like they would do with my brother. Mm-hmm. But conversely, my brother would be on the basketball court he would jump up and do a 360 in the air and slam the ball basically behind his neck in midair mm. in ninth grade. He was scouted by over 30 colleges before he hit 10th grade. Wow. Full-ride scholarship to Boston University. Conversely, I'm sitting on the sideline on the wooden bench between a Gatorade gallon and the water boy. Mm. And grandmom and grandpa looking at me like and mouthing to me, what's wrong? Why aren't you going in? Baby, what's wrong? How do you tell your own biological parents, your grandparents, you're too fat to be one of the other children on the field? Oh, heartbreaking. And how do you describe that feeling of the pain and the suffering you're feeling inside, which is... Wanting to die. The depression is pain turned inward on yourself. Pardon? And and anger, not only at myself, but I'm angry at my parents. I blame them for doing this to me. Mad at the world. And here's the real ultimate one. I Mm. blame God. God, how could you do this to me? You're supposed to be a loving God. Mom wakes us up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock on a Sunday morning, makes a shower, change, put on her Sunday finest, go into, sit at a pew in the Catholic chapel, mm. and say the responsive pleadings that the priest would call for during the service, grab the missalette in the back of the pew, and talk about this loving God, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on this. And I'm going, mm. what a crock. Mm-hmm. What a crock. God doesn't love me. If he did, why would he do this to me? Oh. So by the time I was 15 and a half, I decided I was going to live my own identity. 
Now, when did that shift? I mean, you're telling me when that shift happened, but how did you make that decision? Because that's what your foundation's based on, too, is making that shift, finding that moment to to, to change, you know, go around the corner and change direction. Where? How did that happen for you? Well, at the time, at around 15 and a half, I had the kids that introduced me to um, marijuana, and I would watch my father come in from his job and go pour himself a gin and tonic. Mm-hmm. And or cigarettes and seven or rum and coke or vodka. It's just all so normalized. It's so normalized. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And my, but my dad never suffered from the ism like I did. Mm-hmm. And my brother never suffered from the ism like I mm-hmm. did. And my mom never drank. Never in my life have I ever seen my mother consume any alcohol. Mm. So I am totally the black sheep in that regard to drug and alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. But what that was for me is antisocial pain management, mm-hmm. that I saw the other kids, the other kids who coincidentally were told and asked by the adults in their lives, what's wrong with you? Stop mm-hmm. that. Grow up. Act your age. Stop it. Behave. You're wooing your potential. What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. We all had the same recourse, you know, the same discourse parroting us from every adult in our lives. And you went to the same self-soothing means of drugs or alcohol. Exactly. You can't mm-hmm. see what you can't see, and you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. All you know is you're in pain, and you want it to stop by any means necessary. Any means necessary, exactly. And you any just deaden yourself. Necessary. You just deaden your soul. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you start finding, you know, like water finds its own level. Mm-hmm. So does dysfunction. Exactly. You, you know, I had surround I learned yourself with through, the same, a yeah. sea of sameness, and it's misery, which loves company, and it continues, right. and the cycle continues. Now, how did you break that cycle? Well, after my drug and alcohol adult youth, from the guess from the time of fourteen year old all the way up to twenty one, I was what they call a high bottom at the time. Mm-hmm. I had not experienced any form of uh, long standing brushes with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. My hiccups would be limited to such things as parent teachers conferences, detention mm-hmm. hall. And by the time I was 16, Philadelphia decided to revive American Bandstand with, made by Mr. Dick Clark, but mm-hmm. they refused to let the name go. It was copyright precluded. Mm. So they started another TV show called Dancing on Air, and it became a super, super success. It was mm-hmm. viral, epic TV show. Matter of fact, Madonna's very first TV appearance in her entire life was on our TV show. It was on Dancing, Dancing on Air. On Air. I met Prince, I met Vanity and Apollonia, I met Mary Jane Girls, I met Morris Day in the time. It was pretty, you know, ironic, but the whole life back, lifestyle back then was I had to do whatever was necessary to maintain that celebrity that I had found because therein lied my identity and my self-worth. It was 100% external-based. Exactly. It's completely based on what others think, needing the applause of everyone else, and that's the 80s. <laughs> and, 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 as, and as you well know... If not, will it crash? And mm-hmm. When will it occur? And to what degree of wreckage and toxicity will it spew? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from 16, dancing on the show, 17, 18. And then around 18 and a half, 19, I started dancing professionally with Philadelphia Pacific Ballet Company in their jazz department. They made me take ballet, modern. And then I danced with Waves Jazz Dance Company and another dance company called Chippendales. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed and auditioned in Manhattan at Club 
at Neek at 61st and 1st. Mm-hmm. And then they said, you know, you're perfect for a troop. We're just about to open. I said, where? They said, in Philadelphia. Do you know, do you know where that is? I said, this is a sign from God because I'm from the suburbs of Philadelphia. <laughs> well, I ended up opening up the biggest nightclub in the Eastern Seaboard's history called Club Pulsations in Media, Pennsylvania, where it seated almost a thousand women. Wow. And I was a dance speaker, dancer, and ensemble, you know, and I, I got a lot of um, success that way. And after my delusions of grandeur mm-hmm. were tapped out between my ears, I figured, you know what? I'm great. I was made for greatness. Mm-hmm. And this isn't it. So I decided California needed me. You see, the Hollywood industry needed me. Oh, and they needed they you. Would, yeah, it would be really hard to find me it's in Southeastern Pennsylvania. Exactly. It's the siren song of Hollywood in Los Angeles that so many of you hear. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, and then I was using my racial disparity between my ears as my value that's not found in Hollywood. See, they have actors like Mr. Lewis Gossett Jr. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, and the Sidney Portiers and the Bill Dukes and all these others, but they don't have someone like me, you see. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go and revolutionize this industry. I'm going to set it ablaze when I get there. So I went to AAA and I found the roadmap and I took a highlighter and routed a southern routed a path of travel to California to avoid all the snow, sleet, and ice. Mm-hmm. And I made it out here in three days. But three days? Back, That's pretty fast. Up, from, this is from well, Philly? I was hell-bent. Yes, three days. Wow. Left on the Saturday, got here on the Tuesday. I kissed mom and dad on the driveway and said, see you next, when, next time when my name is next to a gold star in Hollywood Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Exact words. So what I was doing, looking back, I was doing what's called in the recovery community, doing a geographic. Because mm-hmm. all truth be told, I didn't come out here clean and sober. Right. I came out here with two Ilford canisters full of rock cocaine, four fingers high full of Maui Waui gold marijuana, mm-hmm. and a half gallon of pop-off vodka in the trunk of my 79 Camaro Z28. And I also made sure I had my Mr. T starter kit around my neck, and I fixed my <laughs> hair like Prince, like Prince in the Purple Rain album. And, you, and, and you've got like the IROC C28. You have to, half Italian. You had to have no, it, right? You had to have it. <laughs> Hysterical. Yeah. This is, this is a big baller shot caller coming out. You know? mm-hmm. So when I got out here, and they said, my friends had told me, get a place in Santa Monica. People who've actually come out here, unlike I did, um, and stayed out here and vacationed out here. They had a wealth of information to offer me when they knew that I was coming. They said, get a place in Santa Monica, man. Mm-hmm. They got rent control. Well, they didn't tell me the two-year waiting list. Oh. So then I took my high yellow behind to Hollywood, California, <laughs> and I had my very first five-star dinner at a place called Denny's Restaurant at Gower Gulch mm-hmm. on the corner of Gower and Sunset. Still right there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, and then when I went in the restaurant, I saw another sign from God. It was a TV show cast called The Facts of Life. Mm. We're having lunch in there. Mm-hmm. And I saw, you know, Lisa Wetchell and Kim Fields and Nancy McKean. And I said, you know, this is a sign. This is a sign that I am where I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And it's all going to come together. And then I got my very first job. Because mm-hmm. I needed money and that little pocket change that I earned from Chippendales ran out quickly. And I figured, you know, I'm going to use my skill sets in martial arts, so I got a security job. 
And the security job I got was at ABC Studios for the Gary Shandling Show, working graveyard shift. Because mm. something about alcoholics and addicts, we don't mm-hmm. we have this problem with authority, mm-hmm. untreated. Mm-hmm. So. I didn't want to be supervised, but I knew I could do a good job if they just left me alone. If they leave you alone and you can work graveyard, a little easier, right? Yeah, and I would just go around and find 14 skeleton keys that were strategically placed by the executive staff at the studio Mm -hmm. that would make sure the security guard got up, walked out of his little guard shack, found key number one, put it into the side of a detex clock, turned it to register the position and the time he was there, and then go to key two, three, all the way to 14, which took 40 minutes. And then I go back to the guard shack and write a five-minute log. Mm-hmm. And I realized this sucks. I hate my life, and I want to do something different. So I asked the patrol supervisor the next day, how do I get to do your job, man? He goes, well, mm-hmm. this comes with more money, more responsibility, man. I said, cool. Well, you see, Danielle, I'm a narcissist with an inferiority complex at my default. Mm-hmm. And so I sorted this old thing called the Yellow Pages, mm-hmm. and I did my research, and within 24 hours... I was enrolled in the Southern California Rapid Transit District Police Academy. They were having an emergency academy down at Union in the Olympic because mm-hmm. they were at a hiring blitz looking for police officer two positions that would work the money room, which is where all the money in the buses are pulled in. Oh, and that had to be tempting as, as, as a person who's not sober yet oh, and yes. hasn't just taken their inventory and doesn't know their steps. Oh, yeah. That had to all be the money, quite the temptation. All the power, prestige have a badge, a gun, and be feared and loved and loathed and all at the same time. Well, two weeks before I graduated, I had changed security jobs, and I'm working on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And I'm working for a guy named Jackie Fox's company called Exclusive Protection. And those are the guys that you'll still probably see standing outside at all the boutiques, like Tiffany's, Frazier, Wallace. Oh, Wally right. Day, They're all Andre, there. They're all there. Payments. And I'm, okay, I'm so interested working. to know how you went from that to this, because we only have six or seven minutes left to tell you the truth, and I need to know okay. how you got from that to what you're doing now. So please tell me. Well, after I was working on Van Cleef and our pal, Ellen John's bodyguard, and Ellen mm-hmm. John came in, and I said, how do I do your job? And he gave me a business card, and I got hired. And I well, didn't go on the police department, not one day. I went straight into the private sector executive protection specialist, mm-hmm. and I did that job for six years. And the celebrities that I bodyguarded, oh, really high, noteworthy people like David Hasselhoff and Madonna and Prince. Mm -hmm. But my biggest Mm -hmm. clients of all were Millie Vanilli. And I remember when that day came to a crescendo ending when I was standing there, member of the studio that I arrived, and Mm -hmm. I had dinner at Denny's, Mm -hmm. Sunset Gower. That's where Millie Vanilli did their press conference. And they told the world that they were paid just to be the front mm-hmm. men. When it all came out, the truth persona. came out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I and I that. just brought up some pictures. I'll share them with you of me standing right there in between Rob and Fat as they're telling the world this story. So as their career came crashing, so did mine. Mm. But then I quickly revived and got a gig, and I, I signed a very lucrative contract on Friday, November 13th, 92, to go out on a six-month promotional tour for six grand a week. More money than my mom and dad had ever seen in a week's income. Wow. And I signed a contract on Friday, November 13th. I went out Friday, November 14th at a Roxbury on Sunset Strip. I remember the Roxbury. And, those were the days. Oh, yeah. It's one of those velvet ropes in the back of People magazine, Us magazine, all the mm-hmm. who's who. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I left the club at 1230, wasn't feeling the vibe, and I was going to go down to my car until a guy named Drew came around the horseshoe driveway and told and asked me and my friend to go back up and sit at his horseshoe table, and he would take care of the cost of that table for the night. So we did. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, we closed the club, and I got in my dream car, my 
Jaguar XJS V12 that I had purchased. And mm. I drove one mile down Sunset, and I was positioned right in front of Tower Records. And that's when my car went across a double yellow line, mm. hit a Chevy Chevette almost head on, and killed a 19-year-old driver behind the wheel. Oh. The district attorney of Los Angeles County exercised the discretion and charged me with murder in the second degree. And I fought those charges for nine and a half months in Los Angeles County Men's Central Jail. Mm -hmm. And I lost. And the L.A. County got their conviction for murder in the second degree. And 30 days later, I was sentenced to California State Prison for life. For life. That's correct. And they had these funny numbers. They had like zero to life, one to life, five to life, 15 mm-hmm. to life, 25 to life. In California, it means nothing. When they say you have a number that goes to life, they mean life. And when I entered in 1992, Pete Wilson, the then governor, publicly stated, if you're in here with a life sentence, the only way you're going to get out is what's called pine box parole. That's with a toe mm-hmm. tag and in the mm-hmm. pine box. Mm-hmm. Now, what did you do to turn the corner there? Because in the next few minutes that we've got, I really want to hear about your foundation and how you got to that point from prison. Well, hitting the depravity and being responsible for the loss of a life was the worst thing any human being has ever done. And Mm. for me to have been the culprit to have done that Mm. was beyond devastating. I I became despondent. I got to the end of myself, and I had to... I had nothing else there to save me. I was like an astronaut with a tether cord cut. And once I got to the record, the understanding that I had to uncover, discover, discard the causative factors that led me to cause mm-hmm. these, these behavior, I had to deal with it. And, and Keith, you know I what? I, you have, and I want everybody to read about it. And before we get cut off, I need to make mm-hmm. sure and give out your foundation website so that we can have you back on again. I'd love to have you back on to talk about the rest of your story because it's fascinating. But to learn about Keith and the foundation, please go to the KeithASummersFoundation.org. And that's Keith A. Summers, S-O-M-E-R-S with one M, foundation.org. Keith, thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you'll come back and continue to tell your story with me in a week or two. Awesome. Okay, yes, thank, thank you. Thank you very Fantastic. much for having thank me. You for having, awesome thank you for having the time to come and talk about this and for joining me. And uh, everyone, tune in next time to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. And until then, be well. Thanks for joining us this week. Be sure to catch The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney live every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait for you to see what's in store next week.